morning, we turn in God's Word to Genesis chapter 39. If you'd turn there so that you might follow along in the reading of God's Word this morning. Genesis chapter 39, we continue the story of Joseph, his life there in Egypt. Last time we were together, we saw that Joseph had found favor with Potiphar, his master, his Egyptian master, and he was placed over the entire household, over everything that Potiphar had. And we see that Joseph is noticed by someone else in the home. That's where we pick up the account of God's word this morning. Genesis 39, starting in the second half of verse 6. This is the word of God. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in, his hand, in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his father spoke, or that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So far, the reading of God's own holy word. Dear people of God, what is your greatest love? What do you care about most? What do you give your life to? Where is your focus when no one else is watching? Last week we talked about character, who you are, what you do when no one else is around. It's not environment that determines what we do or what directs our decisions. 
so much as it is what we love. What we love determines our decisions, determines how we live, determines what we say, what we think. Environment doesn't determine a person's behavior, but it can certainly reveal a person's greatest love, their greatest passion. Don't forget the first audience of Moses' words. Remember, as he's writing this, it's for a nation that's come out of exile and is now ready to enter a land filled with all kinds of temptations. And Moses records the history of the ancestors. I've said this before, but it's good for us to remember this, to, re- to remember that this, he records the, the, the history of the ancestors and says, pay attention, learn from those who have gone before, both positively and negatively. Well, as we come to look at the determination of sin this morning, let me say something that we must recognize about ourselves before we, we get to that point. And that is this, we're made to love. God made us to love him, to, to love him and to love the world that he gave to us. But sin has disordered our love. We love ourselves more than we love God. We, we want to make our own definitions. We want to determine how to live our lives. And very quickly, what or whom we serve when temptation comes near is exposed. Well, what's the setting as we begin to look at the determination of sin this morning. Joseph's been noticed by his master and made overseer of the house. He's also been noticed by Mrs. Potiphar. After he's been put in charge of her husband's home, she casts her eyes on him, it says there in verse 7. She's coveting. She has desire for him when her eyes should be only for her husband. She desires to have him, and she seeks him out to get him to sin. And she's persistent. Day after day, she urges him to come into her, verse 10 tells us. Well, as we come into this passage, I want us to think about something. I've said it already this morning, and I want to reiterate it, and that is this. We're at war, friends. We have three sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. If we think we're in peacetime, if we think because there's no tanks in our neighborhood, because there are no mortars firing and there's no missiles being launched, that we're at peace, we're fooling ourselves. We're at war. The state or condition of our souls is affected in how we engage the battle. The condition of our souls, are they healthy? Are they they alert? Are they awake? Or are they asleep and easily led astray? How do we, where are we at? Well, it it depends on whether we have that understanding that we're at war. Remember something about temptation, its very origin. Its origin is that diabolical and sinister adversary, the devil. He's deceptive and he wants to destroy you. That's who your enemy is. And he will get in wherever he can. He will tempt you continually. He's like a prowling lion, we read in Scripture, seeking whom he may devour or destroy. 
He's constantly looking for ways to bring you down. Further, the world in its devotion to the devil is also determined to draw you away to love the world and the things of the world. To look for your life in the world. Remember, however, John's words, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you see that? Do you see there's just a very clear distinction. If the love of the world is in you, love for things of the world is in you, then there's, there's no place for love of the Father. It's not that they can cohabitate, as we sometimes think. Well, I can, I can, I can follow God on Sunday, but I can, I can do other things during the week. I can cohabitate with sin, and, and it's all fine. It's a lie. It's deception. When you live for the world, there's no place for the love of the Father in you. I remember this very vividly when I was walking one time through Times Square in New York City when we used to live in northern New Jersey, and I'm looking around all these billboards, and I mean, they are larger than life, and it's at night, and it's, it's just bright, it's, it's brilliant, and, and they're advertising all of these things. If you wear this, everyone will accept you, everyone will notice you. If you, if you uh, drink this, everyone, all of life is going to be nothing but a, an unending party. If you... If you take this, your life will be changed forever for the good. Larger than life. Very quickly in our culture, selling a product for profit can become a call to find one's life in a product. Believing that life comes from the material. That, oh, if I only had that, then my life would be complete. If only I had that. If only I could transgress those boundaries just a bit, I know just on the other side is where I would find happiness. Brothers and sisters, the devil has two schemes. Paul says, remember the schemes of the devil. These are the two schemes. He wants to persecute and kill to remove you from the world or to make you like the world. He has no power over your, your daily living in the sense of the number of your days. That God is, that's determined by the Lord. But in this life, he also is able to work great mischief to try to make you like the world. To be wooed by the world, which every day, day after day after day, whether it's in bright billboards or just in the ear or through the eye, is seeking to lead you astray. Now, let's understand something. God made the world. He made it very good. We should care for the world. We should care for those in the world. But we must be careful to not forget that we serve another master. We are not servants enslaved to the world looking for our life there, but rather we serve the Lord. So there's the devil, there's the world, then there's our own hearts. Our own hearts. We can tell ourselves, just indulge a little. No one's, no one's going to notice. No one's going to judge. No one's around. You can, you can do that. Join the crowd. Stop being so self-righteous. Oh, we like to use our terms when it suits us, right? I don't want to be self-righteous. I mean, I, can, I know that I can do that, but pretty soon then we keep doing more and more and more, and we're stuck. 
We're addicted and we're serving. We're enslaved to sin. The heart of sin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives this definition of sin. It's very succinct. Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of God's law. Any lack of conformity to or transgression of God's law. Whether that's thought, word, or deed. That's the best way I can describe the, the, the sum total of it. Thought, word, or deed. All of life. Any lack of conformity or transgression. In the light of the determination of the devil, the world, and the weakness of our own flesh, we need to be watchful. We need to protect ourselves, to put on the gospel armor against all the temptations around us. We need God to transform our thinking, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds through his word, by his spirit, that we might live out in our bodies a life that is pleasing to God and that would lead others to him. Brothers and sisters, don't determine to tackle the devil on your own. He's far too crafty. Don't try to determine or to, to tackle sin on your own strength. You are too weak. Don't attempt to defeat the world. It's too persuasive. Guard your hearts with the word of God and by the power of the Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. Or this from Philippians 4, brothers, sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Sin continues to come day after day, or temptation rather comes day after day, and we must resist it, flee from it. Well, here is the... Increased challenge we see secondly this morning. It's also very deceitful. Temptation doesn't always come roaring into your life and announce, I'm here and I'm here to ruin your life. Not every temptation is like the one Joseph faces here. We need to be prepared for it. The, uh, Peter tells us to, to gird up our minds, to set our minds, to take action with the word, that we would put it into practice, that we would be ready for that temptation when it comes and from wherever it comes. Guard your minds. Govern your thoughts. Mrs. Potiphar was very forward in her temptation. Perhaps you... Read the story and say, yeah, I'd, I'd never succumb to that temptation. I'd never, I'd never do that. That's, that's, that's not hard to say no to. I, I, I know what kind of an outcome that would be. Yet, we leave other doors, other windows open very often in our lives. We're not careful about what our minds meditate upon. We're not careful with what we watch with our eyes. And there is temptation to sexual immorality all around us. Television and movies, pornography, romance novels. Easily attainable today, available today and consumed at high rates. And what is the result? Marriages are destroyed. Marriage is delayed or it's ignored altogether. Don't be deceived. Temptation to the mind is equally destructive. 
John Piper wrote an article back in 1988 entitled, Battling the Unbelief of Lust. Referring to the words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, which says, This is the will of God for you, that you would be sanctified, that you abstain, listen to what it goes on to say, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles, the unbelievers who do not know God. Sexual desire is God-given. It's good in that design that God has intended for it. Very often, sexual desire falls into lust. Satan can tempt you to be satisfied with lust. You can be satisfied with Lust, if you are not aware of that desire that God has given and the purpose for which it is given, lust feeds desire, but what it doesn't do is honor the object. And further, it disregards God. Those who act in passionate lust do not know God. God designed that sexual desire be satisfied in marriage and lifelong partnership. In marriage, two people honor each other in faithfulness and love for life. Sexual desire is in service to that end. Lust says, I want your body and not you. Or I want a satisfied desire, but I don't want to be living in a lifelong partnership with another. Lust does not desire to honor the other. Makes the other an object. When we do not act in our marriages in a way that's holy to the Lord, remembering the purpose that he's given for marriage, only using it to satisfy desires, we're not honoring God, but serving self. God shows us the end of this desire, and we must remember that in our personal lives, in our marriages. If we don't, we're disregarding God. Piper goes on to make the point that sexual sin is so dangerous that one can lose their soul by participating in it. And he uses this word of Jesus to make the point. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29, better to pluck out the eye that makes you sin or that that is connected to the sin than to keep it and your whole body be thrown into hell. Piper said, says this, Jesus said, heaven and hell are at stake in what you do with your eyes and with the thoughts of your imagination. Let me read that again. Jesus said, heaven and hell are at stake in what you do with your eyes and with the thoughts of your imagination even before what you do with your bodies. And he gave this at a group of college students, to a group of college students, and one of them said, are you saying that a person can lose their salvation? A person saved by faith, if he engages in sexual immorality, can lose his salvation? Piper made this helpful point. I think it's true. There are many who have a view of salvation that disconnects from real life, that nullifies the warnings of the Bible and puts the sinning person 
who claims to be a Christian beyond the reach of biblical threats. They say, well, I know that I've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore, I'm saved. And nothing I do or say will compromise that. And yet the Scriptures warn that the one who commits sexual morality shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That is those, what he's saying here is, that is those who have as their God that sin. Sins in the body. Jesus teaches that justifying faith is lust-fighting faith, is how he puts it. When Christ calls us, he calls us to die to the flesh, to do battle with our sinful lusts. Not, not those good designs, not those things which are, are good by God's design and, and used appropriately, properly to his glory, but those things which are done for self, love of self. He goes on to say this, we cannot have a view of salvation that disconnects from everyday life. That's the deception of the devil. The devil says something like this, you're saved by grace. He lets us think that through, we're saved by grace and therefore the warnings of scripture against sin don't apply to you. Don't worry about those areas of life that you're, where you're less than perfect. Just make sure that your good outweighs your bad. Just make sure that you, you go to the right places more than you participate in those sins of thought and of deed. That's not what the work of the Spirit is about. Through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we are to put to death the sins of body and mind. Paul says in Romans 8, to put them to death that we might be sanctified. Paul, when speaking to Timothy, says this, you are to take hold of that eternal life to, what you, to which you were called. What is that eternal life to which you were called? It is this, to live a holy life. What does he say there in 1 Timothy 6? Fight the good fight in body and soul. Fight against sin. Piper goes on to say this, the faith that delivers from hell delivers from lust. He looks at the Beatitudes when he says, Jesus says this, blessed are the poor, uh, pure in heart for they shall see God. He says this is God's demand and this is God's grace. The only fight we fight is the fight of faith. The fight to rest so fully in the grace of God, to be so satisfied with the glory of God that the temptation to sin loses its power over us. We can deceive ourselves thinking that sin can be kept in one place and not affect the rest of our lives. But Joseph recognized that so-called secret sin would be what? Sin against the commandments. Think about it. Sinning against the one who was in authority over him. Fifth commandment. Honor those in authority over you. Sinning against the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Sinning against the first commandment, you shall have, you shall, uh, uh, have only the Lord as the Lord of your life. God is the Lord of your life. No other gods before you. Tenth commandment, coveting. 
What do we see? We see how they tie together. Well, what does Joseph do? He refuses Mrs. Potiphar. He flees from her. That's the call in light of the deceitfulness of sin, to flee from it, to run from it. He would have nothing to do with that sin. Or to sin in this way would be to sin against God, whom he loved more than anything else. In light of the deceitfulness of sin, don't forget this, that sexual immorality brought down the strongest man in the Bible, the wisest man in the Bible, and the king who united the entire nation of Israel. I want us to understand the seriousness of this sin this morning, dear people of God. John Owen says this, I think it's very helpful, much of the wisdom of faith and the power of the gospel lie in opposing sin's deceit. Think about that. Much of the wisdom of faith and the power of the gospel lie in this, opposing deceitfulness, the sin, sin's deceit. We say, give me wisdom of faith. Give me the power of the gospel. Then help me to defeat or to stand against the deceitfulness of sin. Now, is this text just teaching us to be a Joseph? It certainly is teaching us to resist sin, to flee from it, but we must not forget the larger context of Genesis. When we think about this, we see the comparison here, or we should see the comparison uh, coming before our eyes and the hope of our salvation. Joseph had received, let's, let's think about that comparison. Joseph has received his master's entire estate. Listen to how it's put. Verse 8. Joseph said, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. You hear the echo of the comparison? Where do you think that that's drawing us? Genesis 2, perhaps, where God says, I give you everything in the garden except this one thing. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I give you everything good, everything you need. Well, what do we see happening to our first parents, Adam and Eve? They sin. What happens after the fall? They are cast out of the garden. But God also places enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Children, who is the seed of the woman in this story? Who is the one who is walking with God? It's Joseph, is it not? And who is the one who is the seed of the serpent seeking to tempt? It is the wife of Potiphar. There is a battle continuing to be waged throughout History throughout time, we're at war. And this temptation looks forward to a greater scene, that of Matthew chapter 4. You remember in Matthew chapter 4, the devil seeks to tempt Jesus, to lead him astray. The point of Matthew 4 is not simply Jesus resisted the devil by quoting the word of God. You should do the same. That's true. You should. But what we see there is Matthew working hard from the beginning of his gospel to the end to point out that Jesus is the seed of Abraham who is going to be a blessing to the nations, the one who is going to defeat the devil, the one who is going to provide salvation for those who believe in him. This event takes place on a grander stage. He is the one who is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the second Adam 
who faces temptation not in a garden with abundance, but in, a, in the wilderness, being attacked by our great adversary, the one who would defeat him by a perfect life and atoning death. Joseph's not doing battle directly with the devil, but in this engagement, he's pointing forward to the one who would. And Jesus is that one who has done battle with the devil and turned from every temptation who is perfect in his life. He is the one who offers hope for us. We are caught in sin. When we are caught in sin, we look to him and find in him our resting place. We are not saved because our good outweighs our bad. We're only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The one who has kept God's law perfectly and who provides himself for us. The one who shows what love looks like. He loved his father and refused to take his eye off of him. He loved you and refused to take his eye off of you. Going to death that he might bear the punishment that you and I deserve for the sins that we have committed. That in him we might have peace with God. The Lord was with Joseph. We see that in this passage throughout. It says it several times. Chapter, verse 2, verse 3, verse 22, verse 23. And that is a reminder of how we need the Lord in the battle in which we're engaged. To remember how much we need the Lord Jesus Christ who was the one who was without sin and has opened the way for us to enter into the gift that God has given, even the new heavens and the new earth. He says, this you must remember, all is yours, except to be the God of your own determination. You must trust in me and look to me. Lord Jesus Christ did not turn to the right or to the left, but said, it is my will to do my Father's will in heaven. He kept the law of God. His sacrifice is offered for your salvation. His ascension has won the Spirit of God for you that you might believe and live for Him in body and soul. The call is this, to flee from temptation, to run to Christ, to be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that in this world there will be trials, tests, tribulations, but that in Christ you have shown us our resting place, our sure foundation. He has overcome the world. He has not fallen in love with the things of the world, but has loved you with a perfect love, offering himself up in our place that through him we might receive his righteousness be received by you. Lord, help us to be aware of the deceitfulness of sin, the determination of sin, and then to display our trust in you by giving ourselves body and soul in life and death to you. Grant that your spirit would work in us wholeheartedly 
wholeheartedly. That willingness, that readiness to live for you from now and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.